My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in this episode, we speak with David Dunn. David is a performance nutritionist with a PhD in nutrition, behavior change, and technology. He's the CEO and co-founder of Hexus Performance, and he works with elite and professional athletes from across the world and from a wide range of sports, including the European Tour and the European Ryder Cup team. So we'll discuss what we should eat before, during, and after a round of golf, how we should organize our overall nutritional plan, and how we can improve our recovery and sleep so that we can avoid becoming sick or injured and spend more time playing golf. And his recommendations are really very simple. And remember, these are the same recommendations that he's giving to the best athletes in the world. In fact, the reason David started Hexus Performance was to share the nutritional advice that's given to elite athletes with all of us, with the general population. And that really resonated with me because we started Train Fully for the same reason, to share the training techniques used by elite athletes with all of you. Listen, there is so much misinformation out there, especially on social media, being given by people that just don't know enough about the science. My thing is human movement science and performance enhancement. And if you follow Train Fully on YouTube or on Instagram, you know that the videos we make dive deep into the science. We explain the science behind everything that we do. And a very fundamental part of that science is predictive modeling. Train Fully is not your typical fitness program. It's not some random collection of exercises thrown together in some random order. That is not how elite athletes train. Train Fully is science-based, and it uses a proven eight-step performance enhancement continuum created from complex predictive models of postural dysfunction and movement impairment to have an immediate impact on your quality of movement and eliminate your aches and pains and enhance your performance. Everything we do is done for a scientifically specific reason and in a scientifically specific order. And this is why Train Fully is called the future of golf fitness. Now, the cool thing is David Dunn and Hexus Performance are doing the same thing in nutrition. They're also using predictive models to create interventions and enhance performance. Their models are in nutrition and behavior. And this is why Hexus is being called the future of sports nutrition. Listen, guys, predictive models are the future of human performance. If you want to learn more about Train Fully and our innovative at-home program, go to trainfully.com and use promo code GOLF10 for a 10% discount. David and Hexus Performance, they've created an app called the Hexus app, and it's currently being used by over 1,000 elite athletes across the world. So listen in as David explains how we can optimize our behavior to eat better, sleep better, and perform better.
All right. So joining us today, David Dunn. David, welcome to the show. Cheers. Thanks a million for having me. Now, you've worked with a lot of elite athletes, a lot of professional athletes across a wide range of sports, but the one we're most interested in is golf. Can you explain or describe your work with the European Tour and with the European Ryder Cup team? Sure. So, uh, I'm, look, I'm very fortunate to be working with the guys at the European Tour Performance Institute. So they provide a, a range of performance support to the athletes on the tour. Um, there's some great guys that work out of the truck and across the tour at, at all the tournaments across the year, uh, from physio, strength and conditioning, uh, doctors, uh, as well as, as performance nutrition. So on the tour, we have myself and Professor Graham Close. We both provide nutrition support to the players on the tour. We're there at a range of events. Um, we sort of run a, a clinic-based service for, for any of the guys, uh, caddies, people in their team that want to, to learn a little bit more about how they can optimize their performance through nutrition, um, whether that be through travel strategies and trying to reduce the amount of days they lose through illness in the year because you know, the travel schedule is pretty hectic, um, or looking to you know, stabilize and maintain their energy a little bit better on the course. So we really focus, I suppose, working one-to-one -one with the players that want to engage in the service. And then outside of that, we spend a lot of time working with the events themselves and the people that are providing catering for the players there. So we do our best to try and make sure that the food quality and provision is, is good throughout the week, uh, the competition week. And yeah, try, try fight for what we can get them. And I suppose with the, with the Ryder Cup, it's, it's different. We, we don't need to fight a lot there to try get what we want. Um, you know, those, those, guys are, those guys are great. And I suppose my work started uh, again with, with Graham. We both worked um, in the lead up to the 2018 Ryder Cup in Paris. And, and I was lucky enough to be on site for that week. But again, really trying to drill into what the performance strategies, travel strategies might be, uh, the food provision and fueling strategies for the different guys, their caddies and their own teams for that week as well. So yeah, looking forward to it again later this year, but um, everyone, everyone's individual. So it's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about is what does the typical tour player diet look like? I couldn't answer that honestly, because it's so varied. Um, you know, and you've got some, some guys that are fully engaged in their nutrition. It's part of what they do as an athlete. Um, and they'll be quite dialed in to know how much protein they're consuming. You know, are they getting enough micronutrients? Are they getting enough energy and carbohydrate, depending on the, the training load of that day or the time spent on course, et cetera. And you've got other guys that'll take more of a laissez-faire approach. Um, and they'll kind of, they'll do what they feel like. So um, I think if I was to say what, I could probably answer what I would say I would like a typical diet to be, um, but it's it has to be very uh, player dependent. And I think what we generally do see is, you know, the one bit that would be quite uniform uh, throughout the guys in the competition week would be, you know, people generally will have a, a good sized breakfast before they go out to play. They'll generally try to consume something that's rich in protein. Um, we're lucky there's generally omelette stations on the go where the guys can order freshly made omelet with a, you know, a, free, a few vegetables tossed in um, alongside some lower GI carbohydrates. So some oat-based cereal, like or some good mueslis, granolas, um, porridges as well to make sure that they have enough carbohydrate and energy throughout the course of the round. 
on course again individual snack quality can vary but we generally try to recommend maybe anything from two to four times uh eating anything from two to four times throughout the round depending on the length of the course you know how slow or or fast everything is I mean, you could be out there for five hours um and you are you are burning through a decent amount of energy you know it could be for a lot of guys it could be around somewhere between 800 and a thousand calories during that period so we want to make sure we're we're sort of drip feeding drip feeding the fuel in and making sure that the back nine the energy is as stable as the front nine and especially 15 onwards we don't want to see a, uh any drops in in cognitive function or, or i suppose in in general performance so on course we'll generally recommend a mix it could be anything from again another oat-based snack so it could be like a homemade protein bowl made from oats peanut butter honey some nuts um to get a combination of some proteins some low gi carbs and some fats or it could be something simpler just banana nuts depending on what country we're in and, and what might be available but we'll generally look to have some small and regular snacks uh that's not for everyone but again i think it, it tends to fit most and then after a good a good replenishing meal uh, to get ready then for the round the next day. Yeah, so let's talk about an, an overall plan because the concept of periodization, uh, training periodization is something that I use with all of my clients. It's something that I've incorporated into the Train Fully program. And so for the people listening, when, when I say periodization, what I'm talking about is dividing training up into different phases. And each phase is targeting a specific physiological adaptation, right? So each phase might have a different flexibility adaptation or cardiorespiratory adaptation or strength or power adaptation. And with train fully, we spend three weeks in each phase before progressing to the next phase. And it's sort of the step-by-step progression where each phase kind of lays the foundation for the next one. And that's how train fully works. When I work one-on-one with a client, I typically follow an undulating periodized program where instead of each month being focused on a specific adaptation, each day is, right? So maybe Mondays and Thursdays are power days, Tuesday might be a strength day, and then we have corrective days on Wednesday and Friday. And doing it that way is really beneficial for more experienced athletes and for people who train every day because it allows us to tackle or target multiple adaptations all at once. And this is where I find your work really interesting in the concept of, of carb coding or, or periodization of carbohydrates. Can you explain what that is and how it relates to the training periodization that I do? Yeah, sure. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, like you've pointed out with training, not every day is the same fundamentally. Uh, and as a result, you know, you're, you're training different training types, whether it's strength versus cardio versus some mobility work, you know, you're training at different intensities and you're training for different durations. And as a result of that, you're, you're going to have some different fuel requirements. You're going to need, you know, more energy and more carbohydrate on those higher intensity, longer duration days to fuel and recover from those bouts of activity than you might on some lower to more moderate intensity days. And look, I'm, I'm really fortunate. One of my colleagues and a very good friend of mine is a guy called Dr. Sam Impey. And Sam did his PhD in the space, um, literally pulling muscle from people and analyzing it in the lab. And yeah, it's been great for me to learn off, off him and, and other colleagues in our network throughout the years who have done all the lab work there um, to understand how the muscle responds to different feeding patterns 
in line with different exercise demands. And I really think at the core is, you know, of when we look at dietary periodization or for us carb coding, you know, deliberately manipulating the carbohydrate and energy availability in line with the demands of the activity. The main thing we want to do is we want to make sure the individual is getting the most out of the work that they're doing. And some sessions are just about performing. You know, you need more fuel to perform at those higher intensities for those longer periods of time. Those carbohydrates are going to help to delay fatigue, maintain performance. And again, if we are trying to push the boundaries, then that's absolutely fantastic. Now, there are other workouts where, you know, our heart rate's not going to be that high all the time. We're not going to be oxidizing or burning as much carbohydrate and energy. We might be doing a more moderate intensity strength-based session where it's very much about trying to focus on an adaptation. We're trying to improve some function. And in which case our fuel requirements might be a little bit lower uh, and we should taper them down as a result. So day by day, meal by meal, our fuel should be adjusted in line with the demands of, of what we're doing. Now, there are a few things that might remain pretty consistent in the background. Obviously, we want to make sure everyone's consuming enough protein to maintain, protect, and in some cases, enhance their levels of lean mass. Um, so for the vast majority of athletes, that's going to be somewhere around two grams per kilogram of their body weight of protein intake a day. And again, even if you've got a, let's say, a lower training load day, so it's more of, like you said, a, a corrective day, you're doing that sort of prehabilitation-based work, you're trying to, to work on some of your weaknesses, even though your carbohydrate and energy demands might be a little bit lower, your protein will still remain the same. That, that is something that, that does need to tick over consistently in the background. And your fruit and vegetable intake should, should be the same as well. We obviously want to make sure we're doing everything we can to help people avoid deficiencies and remain illness-free. So seven plus servings is, is always a good rule of thumb to aim for on a daily basis, which, which sounds a lot, but you know, get two at breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe one at a snack, uh, and you've hit it pretty quickly. So for me, that's, that's the big thing um, when it comes to dietary periodization. And like we said, we call it carb coding. Um, we like to ingest your training plan. And then only when we know your training plan can we actually make an accurate nutritional recommendation because we want to help you reach your potential. Uh, and that's going to be different, like you said, in different sessions. Like you said, you've got your undulating uh, periodization approach from a training perspective. So, you know, if we're trying to fuel a big, you know, cardiovascular output, it's going to be different than a one RM in the gym. Um, the same way you'll program it differently, we'll make sure that we're, we're fueling appropriately so that you and the athlete can get the most out of it. Yeah, I think the idea of like standardizing the amount of protein um, that we get per day kind of makes it a little more simpler, doesn't it? Because then we kind of have that, we know that's in the background, and then we just manipulate the carbs based on our activity. Yeah, exactly. I'd say car carbs and energy. And obviously, like as you as you increase the carbohydrate of the, the energy consumption of that meal will go up as well. But yeah, definitely. I, I think it's nice to get into that, uh, into that habit and behavior of consuming enough protein on a daily basis, because, you know, whether you're trying to, to build lean mass, we're going to need to make sure that we have enough of those raw materials to lay down that muscle. Or if you're trying to actually lose a little bit of body weight, uh, drop some body fat, protect that lean mass. We know that resistance training and an adequate protein intake are going to be the two biggest things that are going to help maintain and protect the muscle that you have. So you're, you're still maintaining that sort of strength and function despite decreasing uh, some body fat. 
do you have a standardized amount of fat that we should take in per day? Again, it really, it really varies on sports and it varies on individuals. Um, so when I say, you know, carbohydrate and energy should be periodized, generally what I would anticipate is that if you've got a lower carbohydrate meal, it might also be, you know, slightly higher, I say probably like more moderate in fat content. So for example, if I was having a low carbohydrate breakfast, I might have something like an omelet, you know, a three egg omelet uh, with some additional vegetables cooked in a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. So now I've got some fats from my oil, my eggs, et cetera. Um, whereas if I was having a higher carbohydrate breakfast, you know, it might be more, let's say it's a, a homemade butcher style muesli. There might be some apple juice, some milk, some oats, you know, some fruit and some berries in there. So I think it's harder to standardize fat. I think if you get your, your carbohydrate, um, you know, your carbohydrate and energy approximately in line, and then your, your protein intake, um, standardized fat tends to look after itself, but it can vary anything from, you know, 0.8 of a gram per kilo up to, to two grams per kilo, depending on the person, depending on their requirements. So it can be a big swing. And even though that doesn't sound like a big swing, you know, it's an energy dense nutrient, you know, nine calories per gram, um, you know, carbohydrate and protein are, are literally less than half of that. So it does have a big impact on the overall energy requirements, but what I would see is as a pattern, I would tend to see lower carbohydrate meals would tend to be a bit more, would tend to have a little bit more fat. And then those higher carbohydrate meals might be, you know, at the lower end a little bit. Um, but it always does add, it's important not to avoid it completely because again, we know that good quality fats are really important for things like hormone production, as well as just adding some, some flavor and taste to your meals. Right. And, and this brings me to performance enhancement. My approach and the approach that I take with train fully to enhance performance really focuses on two things. First of all, we want to enhance athleticism. And, and I think most people understand that. Obviously, if you're better an athlete, you're going to have a more athletic swing and you're going to perform better. But another and even more important way that I aim to improve performance is by increasing the golfer's capacity to play and practice more often, right? So we're talking about injury prevention and spending more productive time on the course playing and practicing. How can we modify our nutrition to avoid injuries and to enhance or facilitate recovery and sleep so that we can spend more productive time on the course? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's, there's a lot as part of the answer, but if I was to give like the cheeky short answer, do the basics well, don't worry about the fancy stuff. If you can get into a, a good routine with some core principles in place, you know, those core principles being, are you consuming enough protein on a daily basis? Tick. Are you consuming enough fruit and vegetables on a daily basis? Tick. Are you making an attempt to adjust your energy in line with the demand of your activity? So look, I'm just on the course today for a longer period of time. I'm going to do two hours on the range. Then I'm going to go play 18, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do another two hours on the pudding green and working on my short game. That day just has higher energy demands. So make sure that you're increasing slightly around that um, or increasing, not slightly, depends on what it is, might be a bit more. Um, staying hydrated, getting enough sleep, you know, th those things will go a long way. You know, then you can start to drill into, okay, what is my acute recovery strategy from today to tomorrow? 
what can I do to enhance my sleep, etc. But the vast majority of the time, it is it is just doing the basics well consistently. And the same goes for sleep. You know, we even look at the sleep research. You know, one of the best things you can do to get good quality sleep is build a routine. You know, have a consistent bedtime, a consistent wake time, you know, work with your circadian rhythm, not against it, because Netflix is trying to get you to go down the rabbit hole. And, you know, th those things, those things work. Um, and again, I think it's, as an individual, I think it's really important to respect that everyone's an individual. And, you know, for some people, they might need to work on one or two basics more than others, because not everyone is, is not doing anything. I'm sure everyone's doing some things well, and maybe other things that they just tends to elude them. I think it would be, you know, if, if listeners were out there really trying to figure it out, you know, I'd always recommend starting small. This isn't about trying to change everything overnight. It should be a graded approach. And I think a good rule of thumb is, you know, start with something that you are, that you're 90% confident you could do on your worst day of the week. So if you're having your worst day of the week, work's gone wrong, something's happened, you're late, this is late, you know, what can you do on that day that still is an improvement on what you're currently doing? And for some people that literally might be taking an, you know, a bottle of water in the car with them so that they're actually getting hydrated to and from work. For other people, it could just be cooking their meal instead of buying their evening meal. Uh, and for other people that are further down the line, it, it, you know, it could be a lot more advanced around, you know, preparing and taking their snacks with them to work to the course. But I think always start small and you'll get confidence as you go. You know, you can start to build habits and, and, and build patterns when you do do things repeatedly. So I think, yeah, start small and build into it. A lot of my clients travel. They're either professional golfers traveling from event to event or they're professionals traveling for work. What advice do you have to help them make better decisions while traveling? Yeah, traveling is a tough one as well. And it's, you know, some of the golfer schedules are crazy. Um, you know, it's, uh, and I think that this is a funny one, I suppose. A lot of people from the outside, they look in and they'll go, wow, this, this course looks great. All these events look great. But I, I think, yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes as well that I think is, is often missed. So, you know, the guys, the girls on the tours um, in the offices, it's a, it's, a, it's a big load. It's a big life load on the body. Um, I think when it comes to travel, I think it's important to, to take a few things into consideration. I think, you know, we look at a flight itself. Um, you're generally at an increased risk of infection just by being at the airport, being on the plane. Um, you're in a cabin where there's recycled air. You're gradually going to dehydrate a little bit on the flight, lose a little bit of moisture uh, breath by breath on the plane. And so I'd always look around the in-flight scenario and I would always try to say, okay, what can we do to, to de-risk picking up an, an illness or an infection? So some of the strategies we've used in the past are, you know, very simple, making sure that we have enough fluids on the plane. So when we get through security, buy your bottles of water. We might also pack some effervescent electrolytes tablets in our hand luggage. So we might consume one or two electrolytes um, during the flight to help hydrate better and knowing that we're going to be dehydrated a little bit, especially if it's a long haul flight. We'll also look at some preventative strategies. So we might use something like um, First Defense, which is a, a nasal spray to try to help reduce the risk of, of picking up a small cold. 
on the flight as well. Um, and some people might also chew gum. So we might look at increasing the production of salivary IgA on the plane. Um, and the simplest way to do that is, is chew gum. So if we can upregulate that and be on a flight, that's a really simple, handy, handy trick. I mean, the other things that I would always consider would be what's the food availability like in the airport? Now, obviously, during during COVID, you know, certain shops might be closed in certain airports. So it's definitely worth planning ahead. And if you can bring something with you, uh, either prepare something, take it with you, buy something in the airport that you can take on the flight when you get to your next destination. Um, just making sure that you're you're getting on time um, with your eating patterns will be great. And the next thing, and probably linking to that last bit is, you know, how, how quickly can you get your body to adjust to a new time zone? That's always tricky. Um, you can prepare your body in advance. You know, you can start to shift, you know, go to bed half an hour earlier, half an hour later, you know, a few, a few nights before you travel, two or three nights before you travel, change your exposure to light. But, you know, I think one of the most practical things that I think can help on the day itself would be if I'm jumping through time zones now. So if I'm based in, in Dublin or London and I need to go to, let's say, the, the east coast of America, New York, I know I'm going to be jumping back a few hours. And from the second I get into the airport, I will literally change the time on my watch to, to local time destination and I'll adjust my eating pattern in line with what it's going to be out there. I don't want to start to confuse my digestive system and start to eat throughout the night. You know, that might involve a period of brief fasting to help me get onto local time a little bit better. And that's absolutely fine. Keep drinking, keep hydrating. Um, but I would really try adjust my eating pattern, you know, as from the time I get to the airport um, un until I suppose, until I return. And then once we get there that night as well, I think some people might have trouble getting to sleep if it's, you know, a bit later, they might've had to extend their wake time. Um, things like warm showers, 20, 30 minutes before bed, you know, that exposure, believe it or not, um, to, to a warm shower, the, the natural instinct is you get hit by the warm water, your body warms up. So when you come out of this, your, your body is trying to then drop its core temperature to compensate for that increase in skin temperature. Um, and dropping that core temperature can actually put your body in a better position to go to sleep as well. So th there's lots of, lots of different tricks that can be done depending on if we're flying east or west and the time zones we're going through. But yeah, there, there's a few to start. Well, I mean, you've done just a great job um, explaining and educating us on, on what we should do. But, but the problem is that in order to implement what you've taught us, we have to have the motivation to change our behavior. And this is where your research becomes really interesting and really unique. Tell us about your research and what we can do to improve our motivation. Sure. So I suppose my background um, academically, I'm doing a PhD up in, in Liverpool, John Moore's University um, in behavior change, technology and nutrition. So I've, I've been particularly interested in, in apps, uh, you know, and somehow, you know, I'm in the middle of developing a, a new nutrition app called Hexus with a great team. Um, really excited to bring that to market early next year. But I suppose when it comes to, to what you're saying, certain things have always fascinated me. And, you know, working in applied sport, you can see people that know what to do and they still don't do it. 
And on the flip side, you can see people that don't know what to do, but they also manage to make the right decisions. And I think when we look back, I suppose, at behavior sort of from a theoretical grounding, um, a lot of my research is, is based around the, the COMBI model for behavior change, which at its core states that for a behavior to occur, somebody needs the capability. So both the psychological and the physical capability, they need to know what to do. They need the physical skills to be able to do it. They need the opportunity, again, the social and the physical opportunity. Um, they be, be in the right environment um, around the right people. But they also need the motivation. And motivation can be both reflective and automatic in nature. So I wake up, I brush my teeth, you know, quite an automatic thing to do or reflective where I might be thinking, well, actually, if I want to do that, yeah, I need to, I need to change things. And I think as... I think in the world and generally in performance science, we, we do a good job on educating people. So we generally target people's psychological capability. We increase their knowledge. Maybe we train them how to, how to cook, how to prepare things differently, um, maybe give them some skills that they didn't have before. You know, you can restructure their environment, you know, make sure they have the right food in the house at the right time, increase their opportunity. But but ultimately, motivation is, like you've said, it's, it's one of the hardest things to, one of the hardest things to move. And there's, there's always going to be lots of, lots of things competing for our attention and, and competing for, for our motivation at different times of the day. And if I had an answer that was, you know, this is how you improve somebody's motivation to adhere, I'm sure I'd be a lot richer um, and in a different place. Um, but there are definitely some things that we're we're experimenting with. We're getting good results with, and and we're really excited with some of the data um, we're generating, some of the the product features we're building um, as well. So, I suppose looking at motivation at its at its core, a lot of the problems we see in sport are generally around beliefs. Either somebody doesn't believe they have the ability to do something. So imagine I've tried to lose weight for the last five years and someone else comes along and go, look, I've tried to lose weight. I've tried, I've failed. I failed so many times, I actually don't believe I can do it anymore. So that person would have a low self-efficacy. They wouldn't really have a good belief about their abilities. In which case, if we're working with individuals in this instance, we need to look at what behavior change techniques and what mechanisms of action we can do to, to change the belief system to then improve their motivation. And we might have to start small, like we said, we might have to start off with some small graded tasks. Maybe it might even be problem solving, action planning, um, to build a very graded approach to actually build somebody's confidence back up in themselves to then move on to the, the more difficult tasks. And I think this is where a lot of practitioners can get, can get stuck as well, because you know somebody comes and they say, I, I need to lose weight. And you go, well, that's fine. We'll just get you in a calorie deficit and you'll do this. And, but then they'll go, well, I can't do it. And, and I think that's where the relationship piece really kicks in as well and, and starting to develop that relatedness with people on an individual level. So I think you do have to get to know someone. Um, there are certain things that technology can do now to understand you a lot better. And you, know, you can deliver expert insights in a human way with technology too. I think another one that we often see is, is actually people don't believe the consequences. Sometimes people, you know, you say, look, this is really going to help you. You know, we get this right. We can, 
we can increase your power by X, your club head speed, we're going to put four more miles an hour on that, your track man is going to explode. Um, you know, you, you can build a story, but ultimately if the person on the receiving end doesn't actually believe it, then again, we need to go back and work on that. So we need to look at how we might, from an intervention, intervention function, persuade that person over time. That could involve, again, it could be a very tiered approach. It could be looking at things like peer modeling. Um, so looking at examples of, of people in who have done it, who have been in their situation that they can relate to. It could be looking at comparative imagery of future outcomes. Um, pros and cons. And, and we really need to drill into in that individual why they don't believe. I could start listing off a reel of behavior change techniques, but just really thinking about it. And I think this is where technology is getting interesting now is because you can start to build these, you know, use things like reinforcement learning to start to understand what people are, are responding to, what they like, what works for them. And then you can start to build a model of, of how you can really help that person reach their potential. Um, but yeah, when it, when it comes to motivation, I think in terms of interventions as a practitioner, three of the biggest things um, where there's a good evidence base around at the minute with regards to nutrition are persuasion, coercion, and modeling. Um, and then when we, when, we break those, when we break those things down, there would be a range of, of behavior change techniques that would sit below, like we said, so, some of which we've alluded to, but we might look in, an, I suppose, individual instances to see what might be the, the biggest barrier or enabler to that behavior. And that's why the combi model I find so useful. Um, so that combi model can also be mapped against something called the theoretical domains framework. Um, and again, that's just a bit of a further expansion. So like I've alluded to there, if somebody says, you know, I don't believe about my abilities, I don't believe in these consequences, that TDF will really map, okay, combi your motivation and, and it'll look at those individual components. So you can then identify, okay, this is the bit we need to focus on. Let's, let's work backwards from that. Now, CATS 22, I suppose, where, where theory and, and practice are probably not marrying up at the minute yet are, you know, when we look at a behavior right now, we, we generally get a static snapshot of behavior. Um, so we really need to, to look at progressing that to, to more dynamic models of behavior and how to understand how that behavior is changing over time, different places, different contexts, um, and also move from those group level statistical inferences about populations down to individual level statistical inference. So we can actually learn more about that individual and what works for them. Um, and again, I think this is where the intersection of technology now is, is really important because, you know, we, we essentially have theoretical models. We've got good practitioners, but it's, it's not scalable. It's not continuous. And, you know, we, we want to learn more about individuals. But most people have a higher gear. They just don't, they just haven't accessed it yet. And I think the advancements we'll see over the next few years are, are, are going to be really important that maybe democratizing some of the knowledge and expertise that the pros get right down to the wider group of athletes um, and yeah that's that's something i'm particularly passionate about is 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 helping people realize their potential well and the the idea of using like predictive models is, is fascinating to me because i use predictive models 
for postural dysfunction and movement impairment to improve performance. And the thing that I find so um, interesting to me and, and that really kind of lights a fire inside me is the, the idea of mathematically mapping performance, right? And using artificial intelligence to do that. Where is the AI with respect to performance, nutrition, and motivation? Yeah, so I, I mean, honestly, there's, there's, there's very little when it comes to specifically on motivation. You know, motivation is one of those things you could class as deterministic chaos. You know, you map motivation 400 times over 400 days, you're getting a different result near next every day. But I think it's, it's really important to start to learn about, again, you know, what might, what might lead to a, a higher chance of somebody enacting behavior, uh, behavior, how you can nudge or prompt or cue somebody in the right moment at the right time of their day when their motivation might be at its highest based on the events that have just happened. Um, you know, for example, if I send you a message in the morning and I say, look, I think it's really important that you get your recovery in today because you have a big session. Like you've, you have a 60 minute, um, really tough power base session in the gym. And look, we're going hell for leather on this. And there's going to be this horrible finisher. And if you send that at 8am and the session occurs at 6pm and they finish the session at 7pm, like end of the day, they're going home. I'm knackered. That information could have got, been and gone, you know, but could you target that message so that the delivery of that occurs as soon as they finish the gym session? Now, you don't want to have to sit by your phone to say, okay, they were supposed to go at six, but actually they went to five. Maybe they went to four, you know, guesswork. You know, maybe you can build models to target the delivery looking at, um, I suppose, digital trace data to, to know when that person is, is doing what they're doing, not doing what they're doing to then provide that nudge in the right moment. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, and, and the idea of, of being um, like, if somebody has a, a bad round in golf, the last thing that they're thinking about is, is, you know, doing their corrective work afterwards, doing their recovery work so that they can, you know, set themselves up for a more successful tomorrow. They're usually just frustrated and they go home and they kind of throw that by the wayside. Um, do you find the same problem or the same issue with nutrition? Yeah, of course. I think, I think, look, we have to respect a human. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's something I'm really passionate about is, you know, we don't work with numbers. This is an athlete X, this is an athlete Y, um, you know, or one, two or three, you know, you work with, you work with John, you work with Mary, you work, you work with people. And I, I think that's probably the most important thing is, you know, knowing when to push and knowing when to leave it. Um, because sometimes that is, that's probably what that person needs, you know, now other times they, they, they can't have the excuse all the time to say, no, look, it didn't go my way. Toys are out of the pram. I'm, I'm not doing this. Cause if that was the case every week, there's going to be, there's going to be problems. But I think if it's, you know, if it happens every now and again, I think it's important that, you know, sometimes people need a little bit of time to, to reset themselves. Um, that's a personal process that needs to be respected, I suppose, and supported. And, you know, other times it's, you know, people need 
the, the, the little nudge to say, hey, look, don't care. Let's, let's just go and let's do what we can here to turn it around. And I think that's where the unique relationship between the, the practitioner and the athlete really comes in. And I mean, I, I can think of a few cases. There's, there is one case that is jumping to mind um, back at the, the Open. I can't remember what year. It was at Carnoustie, and I remember one particular player came in on a Saturday, didn't have a good day, like went to a quiet room, took out a bottle of wine, like this is this is what I need to do. Next day went out, shot seven under, like, you know, what what can you say? You know, he just needed to take the edge off. Other people, they could go out and shoot seven under, have a bottle of wine, go out the next day, shoot seven over, you know, because they could be in an absolute hole, so um I, I think we know look golf is golf is a very mental game but it's uh, definitely what you can do from a performance perspective to support that for the people that want to learn more about the things that you're talking about what resources would you recommend yeah so i mean if you're if you're an academic um i'd probably direct you to a few authors to start so i think if you're interested in behavior i think ucl university college london Center for Behavior Change has, has a vast array of resources, um, some phenomenal authors and some great work coming out of there. So the reading and publications from there would be great. If you're interested in, in carbohydrate periodization, like we discussed earlier on, I would definitely direct you towards the work of Liverpool John Moore's University, um, in particular, the work of, of Dr. Sam Impey, Professor James Morton. They'll be two key authors who I, I'd recommend going and reading their work. And if you're interested in the technology side of things as well and, and keeping up to date on, on when we'll be releasing our platform in, it, in its early version, um, they can find that out at hexisapp.com. Um, sign up and hopefully we'll, we'll be in touch with some updates in the near future. Where can people find you and how can they get in touch with you? Sure. So I'm on, on social media, Twitter and Instagram at uh, the nutritionizer. So it's the nutritionist. It's just instead of a T, it's spelt with an OR. Um, I suppose the backstory on that weird one is one of my first jobs in professional sport. Somebody literally spelt the title wrong and it stuck with me. So that's it. That was the that was my swipe card that I got on day one. And here we are. All right, guys. So if you're looking to really make an impact in your overall health, if you're looking to enhance your performance, I recommend combining Train Fully, the future of golf fitness with Hexus, the future of sports nutrition. And when's Hexus going to be available? So we're going to be in the app store early uh, next year, but we'll be there'll be beta access, uh, I, I suppose, towards the, the middle of this year. All right. So in addition to that, so that's hexapp.com to sign up. Um, also head over to trainfully.com. Use promo code GOLF10 at discount for a 10% uh, sorry, at checkout for a 10% discount on the Trainfully program. And um, David, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing your wisdom with us. You've been an absolute superstar. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. And thank everybody for listening. 